This free podcast of Speaking of Faith is provided by American Public Media. Please support this valuable public radio service and contribute today. Go to the station listings page at speakingoffaith.org to learn more about becoming a member of your local public radio station. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the soul of war. With Iraq veteran and chaplain Major John Morris, we explore how war challenges the human spirit and the core tenets of a life of faith. The war on terror, he says, presents its own spiritual challenges. He is working to support the reintegration of National Guard and Reserve personnel who are being mobilized for active duty at record levels in Afghanistan and Iraq. We take a citizen off the street of Minneapolis and we turn them into a warrior. A person who, upon demand, without a split-second hesitation, would point a weapon at another human being and shoot them until they don't get up again. It takes six months to get a person ready to do that. Then we put them in combat for 12 months. Then, in 300 hours, we can have them from their last mission back on the street in their civilian clothes. There's a problem there. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. I'm Krista Tippett. In recent decades, we have acquired the language of post-traumatic stress to treat veterans after combat. My guest this hour says that we must also find new language, rituals, and practices as a society to support all veterans as they rejoin their lives, their families, and their communities. Chaplain Major John Morris speaks with honesty and passion from his own experience in Iraq and his work now with returning soldiers and guardsmen and women. Being a warrior, he says, is at once heroic and spiritually bruising, even under the noblest of circumstances. The war on terror will be with us for many years to come, Major Morris warns, and we must pay closer attention to the imprint it is leaving on military personnel for their sake and for ours. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, the soul of war. Since September 11, 2001, 1.3 million military men and women have served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and more than 1 million have returned to pick up their lives across this country. We often use movies and books to make sense of such epic events. And Tom Hanks' portrayal of an English teacher turned World War II soldier in Saving Private Ryan is often cited by veterans as an unusually accurate Hollywood window into the spiritual disconnect that is wrought by military service. So I guess I've changed some. Sometimes I wonder if I've changed so much my wife is even going to recognize me whenever it is I get back to her. And how I'll ever be able to... to tell her about days like today. I just know that every man I kill, the farther away from home I feel. My guest, Chaplain Major John Morris, is now working, as he says, to bring veterans all the way home. He's helped to develop a pioneering program, the first of its kind in the country, to support the reintegration of National Guard and Reserve members into society. At times, they have composed almost half of the active-duty troops in Iraq, but they've not had all the support systems of the regular army. John Morris has been a chaplain since 1984, and his insights into the soul of war have been shaped through two tours of active duty, most recently during some of the worst fighting in Iraq. I was in Iraq in 2004. Okay. I uh, celebrated Easter, a very memorable, memorable Easter in 2004 in the city of Fallujah. Mm. So I was in Iraq in a dangerous place at a, at a really terrible time. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Easter in Fallujah. I was at a camp with the Marines, the 1st Marine Division. I was supporting Army Special Operations soldiers, psychological operations soldiers, who were supporting the 1st Marine Division as they began to lay siege to and take down that city. At Camp Blue Diamonds, the headquarters of the 1st Marine Division, and uh, we had an early sunrise service, which actually was dangerous because uh, the camp was being mortared occasionally. But nonetheless, the Marines showed up in great strength with a few Army personnel there. 
and I celebrated with Father Divine, the First Marine Division, Roman Catholic priest. And it was uh, particularly memorable because, uh, you know, it was the only service I've ever conducted where we were, we all knew that by the end of the day, people who were worshiping in that service would no longer be on this planet. And so we talked about uh, the hope of the resurrection with a sense of fervency and urgency that I had never experienced before. The walls of the chapel were uh, adorned with uh, posters with the name of every Marine that had been wounded in the Anbar province and every Marine that had been killed. And I couldn't help but think of that uh, verse in Hebrews that talked about being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Hmm. You know, we were, and we knew that very quickly many of us could be on that wall. So there was a sense of joy and expectancy and dread all melt together. All the Marines had their weapons. They were ready to go out on their mission. The place was packed. It was loud, as Marines can be. It was a participatory service. It was a beautiful, sacred privilege. And um, service ended, and I went on my way to do my rounds of, of conducting Easter services for Marines and Army personnel all over that area. So it, it, was, uh, it was an amazing time. A lot of Marines were killed. A lot of Army that soldiers killed. That same day killed. after that? Yeah, that fight uh, in Fallujah rolled on for five days and then went down the road to a town called Ramadi, where 12 Marines were killed. That corridor there just was an incredibly bloody corridor. Of course, that was a peak in the insurgency, and then it rolled into Sadr City and then down into the holy city of Najaf, and, and my mission was following all that. So hmm. the sense, however, of the privilege of doing ministry in a place like that was overwhelming, and it was really sustaining for me because um, I, I had the strong sense that I was where God wanted me to be, and I was empowered by him to minister to men in desperate situations, both Iraqis and Americans. I had a mm. tremendous opportunity to meet with many, many Iraqis as I went with... How, how did that happen? How did you come to be speaking with Iraqis? Well, our psychological operation teams go right into villages and in towns, and I would often accompany those teams, and we travel with uh, translators. And so I, I had great opportunity to talk to the translators, and these were men who were risking their lives for their country's freedom, they faced certain death. Uh, During my time in Iraq, we had 10 translators killed. Hmm. When they would leave to go home, they'd be uh, tracked down, hunted, and and murdered. And they knew that that was the risk they were taking. So you were kind of the chaplain to those Iraqi translators as well? I I didn't set out to serve that, but uh, Mm -hmm. the men that I met were deeply spiritual men. They respected things of the spirit. And one of their dismays was that they didn't find many Americans that they considered to be spiritual. There's something interesting about the chaplain corps of our military that it's profoundly interfaith in the sense that not only there are chaplains from many traditions, but that you minister, you as a United, as someone mm-hmm. ordained in the United Methodist mm-hmm. Church, you minister to whoever's there, right? I do minister to whoever comes and uh, try not to abuse my office and getting them to believe what I believe. Mm-hmm. And then I work hard to ensure that that soldier has what they need to worship in the way that they believe they need to worship. And I'll give you a great example. We learned that a rabbi would be in Iraq for Passover. And, you know, rabbis are in short supply in the Army. So I found four Jewish personnel, two Marines, two Army, way out in the Ambar province, and said, hey, I will get you on a convoy and accompany you and get you into Passover, which was being held in the CPA Palace, now the embassy. And I had one of the most uh, moving experiences of my life, sitting in Saddam's palace, Hmm. sharing with these Jews who, in their case, were not really well-versed in their own history and saying, hey, look, guys, you've come full circle. Your people were here for thousands of years. And they endured so much, and you're back, and you're sitting in the palace of a man who persecuted your people. And when the psalmist said, you know, sing to us the songs of Zion by the river, this is where it was at, and you're back. And look, look around. The room's by the rivers filled. of Babylon. Yes, the, mm-hmm. the room is filled with 400 of your compatriots. And we had all the coalition partners were represented by Jewish personnel, the CPA, the civilian contractors, all the branches of the military. I sat through the whole service, three, three and a half hours, 
and uh, you know, walked out of there feeling like I, I've touched the hem of God here. I, I have been in something so movingly spiritual that uh, I can't really capture it in words. And uh, when it when it was all said and done, one of the young soldiers said, "You know, sir, I, I never thought a Christian would do this for me." Hmm. And in know, a Muslim we, country, in a Muslim, <laughs> yeah, just I mean, God has a sense of humor. And, and <laughs> on that day, he had a great laugh. By the waters of Babylon. Well, we sat down, and where we went, when we remember Zion, by the waters of You know, I love hearing that story because it's been so striking for me from the very beginning of our military involvement in Iraq that it is this critical place of kind of sacred geography mm-hmm. of Genesis also, of kind of the beginning of Abraham, mm-hmm. of the beginning of so many pivotal biblical sure, stories. Sure, Well, there's no doubt about it. The historical significance is unbelievable. And there's a spiritual dynamic that I think often we, and I'm speaking of American military forces, fail to take into account. And it's to our demise. In that culture, in that land? That's part of it. And in this fight, which we call the global war on terrorism. We say that we understand that the people we're fighting are motivated by an ideology that's rooted in an aberrant view of a religion. That's a great line, but I've often had to really be forceful with commanders that you don't understand. These people are tapping into something in the spiritual realm. And if you fail to take it seriously, it doesn't matter how long we fight. We will not defeat them. What does that mean for you? I mean, what are you wanting these commanders to do differently, or how are you wanting them to think differently when you say that? It has several components to it, and I'm going to be blunt, and uh, I don't say this for effect. It's just a reality. We're in a war, but this is a war where you can't kill enough people to win because this has a spiritual motivation to it. You've got to uh, have more tools than kinetic energy, and that's how I talk to commanders mm-hmm. because they understand kinetic energy is firing of a weapon system. That means we have to take seriously religious leaders. We have to take seriously the religious worldview of people. We have to think that when we fire that weapon and we miss, that round goes somewhere. When it hits somebody else that's innocent, it has a ripple effect on a culture that takes seriously life and death, clan and family. Mm -hmm. That when we search mosques, it has an impact. Whether the mosque was used as an armory, which I often saw that it was or not, there's an impact. And then other things that we have to take seriously. How do we care for the dead? These people you have... mean the Iraqi dead. Correct. Iraqi mm-hmm. dead, Afghani dead, the insurgent fighters that come in from other countries who are Muslims. Do we understand their sacred rituals and rites for dealing with the dead? Do we understand the religious calendar of the area we're operating in and adhere to this? You know, Iraq has... Uh, huge pilgrimages that the Shias have to make their way to Karbala and Najaf. You know, you got to take that seriously. And and we do. I'm not saying that we don't, but I'm passionate. But it's that, hard. You're right. It needs a whole shift in worldview. Oh, it does. And we train military commanders to be excellent warriors, and they are. They're very lethal and very effective. But we don't train them about the spiritual dimension. We pay lip service to it. You know, hey, religion's a part of culture. You ought to be aware of that. Well, that's great. But how aware are we really? You know, you're getting at something that I think about a lot and that I think intersects a lot of my conversations with religious people speaking about many different subjects. But where you're talking about it in the midst of war, an American military presence in a Muslim culture, it's intensified. And it is this, um, the power of religious energies of the spiritual aspect of life, which can be powerfully good, but when it's distorted, very powerfully destructive. Yes, also. it can. Yes, it can. You're exactly right. And we're in a day and an age where, you know, there's a toxic edge to, um, to some views of religious understanding, and it's costing people their lives.
Chaplain Major John Morris. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, the soul of war. Chaplain Morris is working now on programs to address the particular spiritual challenges facing National Guard personnel in and beyond combat. There are currently over 100,000 National Guard and Reserve personnel mobilized worldwide, mostly in Afghanistan and Iraq. This is the highest level of such deployment since World War II. Here's the thing that we face in the the Army Guard and the Army Reserve, which is being used now in this war like it hasn't been used since World War II. Massive call-ups, people uprooted from their lives, and we actually go to combat longer than the active duty counterparts do. They go for six months to a year. We go for 18 months, six months of training, 12 months of combat. Now, here's the disconnect. We take a citizen off the street of Minneapolis, and we turn them into a warrior. A person who, upon demand, without a split-second hesitation, will point a weapon at another human being and shoot them until they don't get up again. You don't just easily train people to do that. That is an amazing transformation. It takes six months to get a person ready to do that. Then we put them in combat for 12 months. Then, in 300 hours, we can have them from their last mission back on the street in Minneapolis in their civilian clothes. There's a problem there. Mm -hmm. The active duty doesn't do that. They bring their soldiers back to bases. They have a transition period. They have programs. They watch their soldiers. We just release them. And how do you reverse from warrior back to citizen in 300 hours? Mm -hmm. It can't be done. And it's not being done well around the country. And so we're putting a speed bump there to help this process and an educational component and support component to try to help our soldiers. And that's where the spiritual dimension comes in. You know, and I want to ask you, as someone who is wanting to focus attention on the spiritual dimension, you're Mm -hmm. a a religious person, Mm -hmm. a religious leader. And when you put it that bluntly, that we're training people to point a gun at another human Mm -hmm. being and kill them, you know, what what happens to someone's spirit in that process? And how do you Mm -hmm. how do you make sense of that? How do you justify that? Yeah, and that's a classic question, and I do put that very bluntly because we don't do anybody any service couching war in any language other than war language. I call it tricking soldiers into killing people. If we mask this language, we set them up to be further damaged because they're not mentally prepared for the horrible job we're giving them to do. And if we don't talk as a society about war with war language, then we're fooling ourselves about what we're all participating in, and we're underestimating the impact it will have on those that we're sending there and then on their families when they return. Now, how do I deal with the whole question of killing another human being? Well, not with great ease. And anybody worth their salt, I would pray, would be at dis-ease with the concept of sanctioning the taking a human life. Now, the way I deal with it with soldiers, I don't have a formula. But we are engaged in something that we believe by our president and foreign policy to be a needed task to combat a greater evil. We have people on the battlefield who want to take our lives. We have a great responsibility to discern who the enemy is and who isn't the enemy and to use the proportionate amount of violence to address and kill our enemy and to spare those who are innocent. And We cannot deny that when we take human life, it impacts us. When we go in after killing people and search them and find their photographs of their families, we have killed human beings. We haven't killed things or people that we've managed to convince ourselves are robots. We've killed humans. And I will tell you, dealing with combat veterans of all generations in these, I'm proud to say that American soldiers are bothered by taking human life. Hmm. We may have time periods on the battlefield where we are hardened, but when we come home and we have a chance to reflect, we don't come to peace easily, even though often we know we were in clear-cut engagements with an enemy. Mm -hmm. The worst that we have to deal with is when we know we've killed innocent people or our own soldiers due to the chaos of the battlefield. And that drives some soldiers mad. But for all of them, it bruises their spirit. And... This is where I, as a clergyman, plead for the help of the church because 
soldiers come looking for absolution and often find that the church is not a place they can come to or they feel disassociated from it. And then where do they go? Right. You have said elsewhere that that spiritual leaders, clergy, and congregations are really often not equipped. And, and you know, where is the training for this in our culture mm-hmm. to, to be part of this healing of our military personnel when they come back home? Tell me about that. Tell me what you've observed in terms of what, what is the problem there? It, it seems, you know, having been a parish pastor for 20 years while I served in the Garden Reserve, I can observe the, the people that I associated with in my denomination. By and large, they came of age either during the Vietnam era or were instructed by people who came of age during the Vietnam era, a time when we had a societal nervous breakdown and when we did turn on the military. We understand intuitively we don't want to do that again, but I watch my colleagues wrestle with the dynamics of how do I separate the war from the warrior? Mm -hmm. And how do I deal with a divisive issue in my congregation? I don't want to appear to be promoting war. That seems to be the default mode for most Christian clergy, and I think that's a good thing. I don't want to promote war, but I don't want to shame the warrior, but I don't know how to do either, so I just won't do anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, some go one direction or the other. Some say, look, I'm against this war, and I'm not going to honor the warrior. I won't have an American flag in my sanctuary, and I'll do everything I can to let warriors know that they shouldn't participate in this. And on the other end, you can wrap the flag around the gospel and say this is God's war. And, and I've seen both. I'm asking people to do the more nuanced of whatever your foreign policy opinion is. Please share it. That's your role as a prophet. I have no problem with that. But in your congregation are men and women whose sons and daughters or grandmas and grandpas or fathers and mothers are off risking their lives. How do you tend to them and how do you help that soldier come home? Big, big pastoral challenge. It seems to me that even in congregations where, and you're right, you know, the, the public debate tends not to be nuanced, no. um, at least the, the publicized debate. Sure. It seems to me that in congregations where the choice is to support the war and to welcome our military personnel back as heroes, even there that healing might not take place because there might not be that nuanced acknowledgement still of what a difficult and damaging experience that is, Mm -hmm. even if it is deemed to be morally right. Yes, you're right. And then we don't have a lot of rituals, and we need one for this. Hmm. Yeah, in medieval days... In some parts of Europe, the priest would go with the soldiers raised from the villages to go fight and, uh, you know, hear their confession prior to going to battle, give them last rites, and send them to war. So that's a very stark psychology. Hey, you may die. So we need to make things right with God. Then when they came home, they they were stopped before they entered the village. The village went out to meet them. They were not allowed in the village, stripped of their clothes that they had fought in, bathed, heard confession again, celebrated the Eucharist, and then allowed back in the village. Now, what were they saying there? Hey, there needs to be some business done with God and with the community prior to allowing you to rejoin us. Mm. We need to leave the old out here. I say we're in the Dr. Phil culture. Here's an ironic observation on this mm-hmm. war in, in Afghanistan. In terms of how it's Iraq. been covered. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it's our culture today. We like to delve into people's personal lives in pain. That has a peculiar spiritual effect on combat veterans as well because heroism doesn't seem to be as valued in our culture, mm. but having personal pain and trauma gets you notoriety. That's a real twist that's hard for people to come to grips with. People, soldiers, once they're back here. Sure. And the military, you know, heroism's a sacrament. It's a virtue. Mm. It's something unbelievable to see somebody exhibit. And we honor it highly. And so what it tends to do is it alienates us even further. We're part of a subculture in America that values things that the general culture doesn't seem to be as interested in. And that that puzzles us, and so it creates, again, that sense of alienation that, hey, where I was really most vital and alive was when I was with my combat buddies and we were executing our mission. 
when I come back here, people want to treat me like a victim. There must be something wrong with you because you went to combat. Something that I've noticed in this war or in in these wars in in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and I think this is part of the media's attempt to honor the people who are fighting. Mm -hmm. You've had a lot of stories about the toll that it takes on their families for Mm -hmm. them to be away. Sure. Those are real traumas that are Mm -hmm. happening to people in our society. But to me, I mean, and you've kind of given me a word to describe what what makes me uncomfortable about it, it is portraying military people and their families as victims. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree. And I often say you know this in our... About? Sure. I often say this in our community reintegration training. Make, see if this resonates with what you just said. Mm-hmm. I say to people, you know, this is a volunteer army. This is not your father's army. Right. And it may shock you as citizens to know that the vast majority of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who are going to war chose to do this. And in fact, the vast majority in theater, while they don't like being away from home, they don't like the danger, they believe this is what the nation needs them to be doing. And we used to call that noble. And now we don't seem to have a word for that. Back in the 80s, there was a term, weekend warrior. And there was a myth that said, if you call the Guard and Reserve, they won't come. Well, you know, there hasn't been any mass desertions. There have not been any units that fail to come. That's an underreported story. In fact, there's been an incredible amount of self-sacrifice. And... Yeah, people have uprooted their lives. And, and what a lot of folks don't realize is we're sending from 17 to 57 to war. 1,700 soldiers in Iraq today are over the age of 55. We're sending grandpa and son, father, son, mom, and dad This is an unusual time in American history with this volunteer force. The 3,000 Minnesota Guard soldiers that are in Iraq today, 1,000 of them are on their second deployment since 9-11. That means they've given up twice putting any roots down in a civilian career and in their family to serve in harm's way. I'm awed to be around people like that, and I have a hard time conveying that to my fellow citizens that we're not victims. You know, we're willing volunteers. Chaplain Major John Morris. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, his observations on how war challenges the core tenets of a life of faith. There are, he says, atheists in foxholes. In the American army these days, there are also Muslims and Wiccans and Buddhists. Continue this exploration at speakingoffaith.org. Listen to Major Morris describe his tour in Iraq and view images he took there. Use the particulars section on our website as a guide to this program. Download an MP3 to your desktop or subscribe to our free weekly podcast. Listen at any time, at any place. Also, sign up for our free email newsletter. All this and more at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Opus Dei and the Da Vinci Code, Sunday night, June 4th at 10 Eastern on Hallmark Channel. An in-depth look at the usually secretive organization figuring prominently in the film, June 4th, 10 p.m. Eastern, Hallmark Channel. And by Thrivent Builds with Habitat for Humanity, an opportunity for Lutherans to help build 310 decent homes this year with families in need. Online at ThriventBuilds.com.
Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the soul of war. I'm speaking with Chaplain Major John Morris, a recent veteran of Iraq, about the spiritual impact of military service on soldiers and their communities. He leads a pioneering initiative of the Minnesota National Guard called Beyond the Yellow Ribbon. A potential pilot for a national program, it is teaching clergy and counselors how to deal with the mental and spiritual needs of returning soldiers and their families. An estimated 18% of combat veterans suffer significant mental health issues, including post-traumatic stress disorder. The Department of Defense puts that figure twice as high for Army Reserve and Guard members four to six months after returning home. Major John Morris is just as concerned with the challenge of readjustment for the other 70 to 80 percent. When we say mental health, my experience is most of the duress that I see in soldiers coming out of combat is marital issues. Seventy percent of the military is married. You leave your spouse and your family for 18 months, you're going to have problems when you come home. The strongest of marriages will be tested sorely. When you leave your children and try to reconnect, and they've grown two years in your absence, you're going to have some significant challenges. When you try to re-engage with a job, and I'm speaking about the Guard and the Reserve now, that will cause you mental duress. Mm -hmm. On top of the agitation that you're going to experience, having been in another culture, basically I tell people, if you live in a Ford operating base in Afghanistan or Iraq, you're in something like a medium security to maximum security prison. Anybody that's been in prison for 18 months and gets released is going to have some issues that are going to cause stress. Then you throw the culture. You've left the Middle East and returned to the United States. Then you throw the loss of camaraderie. And then on top of that, you throw all the battlefield skills that you've learned to survive, don't translate. Mm -hmm. You're going to have duress. But the legions of soldiers throughout all conflicts come, work through those things, leap forward in life in a tremendous way. Okay. And, you know, I wanted to ask you about this. I do think there's a general sense that, you know, we talk about the great generation, mm -hmm. World War II. There was a war that we think of as morally right. Mm -hmm. No ambiguity, really. You can take fault with some mm -hmm. missions and... Sure. Actions. And they came home and lived happily ever after. Right. Now, well, now thanks did, for raising that. Is that, <laughs> is that because we didn't talk about these yeah. problems back then? Right on. I'll prove it to you. Okay. Let me read you something here from a memoir. Okay. From my wife's great uncle who lives in Lake Crystal, Minnesota. Great guy. He uh, served 152 days in combat with the 91st Infantry Division, fought up the boot of Italy till the last day in hostilities with the Germans in Italy. This gentleman writes, combat is a traumatic experience. After all these years, even though my senses are not as keen, I can still close my eyes and see and hear and smell the battle and the sense, the death and fear that surrounded me. My discharge from the Army was anticlimactic. I was 20 years old, but some ways I was an old man. I'd been places and seen things a few people see in a lifetime. I wanted to forget, but I couldn't. I had trouble sleeping. I was nervous, confused, and angry. I had trouble concentrating and had no idea on what to do to earn a living. In today's world, I suppose I'd be diagnosed as having PTSD. However, we were told to go home, forget about it, get a job. My parents encouraged me to attend college, but with my mental state at the time, I knew it wouldn't work. During the next three years, you might say, I was a bum. I drove a flower delivery truck, dismantled machinery, Worked nights in a 24-hour truck stop, was a molder in a foundry, and went broke operating a restaurant. Now, that is a World War II greatest generation dog-faced soldier. Not a Vietnam vet. No. Now, we didn't have, you know, he was like the his peers of the day. They, they didn't have a language to discuss it. So many people had experienced it that they silently bore the agony. Interesting thing that the VA tells me, and I work closely with VA vet centers and VA psychologists, they tell me that since 9-11, the biggest upsurge in customers for them is World War II generation veterans. Really? Who finally are coming in with idle time on their hand, like this gentleman who wrote the four years of his combat experience down in a book. They're coming in looking for help. So, yeah, they had the same problems dealing with the trauma of war that this generation will have. I think this generation, we've got more resources for them, and one of the 
purposes of my program is to connect them early with those resources so they don't have to walk with this for 60 years. Mm. So they can bring this to the surface and process it, draw strength from it, and move on with their lives. Mm. I want to ask you, we started here, but I want to sort of come back to this territory of war and faith and the soul. There's this phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that phrase? It's not true. There are atheists in foxholes. Stephen Mansfield's written a great book called The Faith of the American Soldier, and he chronicles what he saw in Iraq. Same time I was there, I think he got it very, very well. What I saw in Iraq, and I ended up my tour of duty in Guantanamo Bay in, in Cuba, but what I saw in my combat experience and I've seen through my 22 years is on the battlefield using crude numbers, a third of the soldiers were men and women of faith, growing in their faith or coming to a new understanding of their faith. A third of the soldiers were indifferent or fatalistic. And that's that religion on the battlefield bears a lot of looking at. And the other third were either indifferent or jettisoning their faith. Okay. And many would say to me very bluntly, I've lost my faith. I saw my buddy get blown away or I was involved in a firefight that killed innocent people. And if there's a good God, he wouldn't let that to happen. So I do not want to believe anymore. The guys I worried about that were fatalistic were people who had really hardened in their soul. And they had what I would call the thousand yard stare, the classic combat look of a fatigued soldier. And they were droning through each day, not thinking too far ahead and not being retrospectful. To look ahead meant you had to have hope for a future. To look within meant you had to deal with the pain and the challenge. Too much energy to expend that, you know, to do that, so they wouldn't do that. And they had seen so much chaos, and war is chaos. You could do everything right and still die. And you see that on a regular basis. And that's so counter to American philosophy, where the good guys win in the end, and if you do everything right, you're rewarded. Sure, and, and here, you know, a guy that's barefoot with an AK 47 can kill the best and the bravest soldier. Or a mortar round can fire unexplicably into your PX and kill innocent people. It's chaotic. And that that chaos seems to so harden people into saying, I can't think about transcendent things. Nobody's in control. The only thing I can control is the space around me right now. And whatever is, is, and whatever will be, will be. And I'm not going to worry about it. So don't bother me with anything transcendent or eternal. Now, the thing that really throws the, a wrench into all of this is being shot at by people who were praying a few minutes earlier in a sacred place and who may be shooting you out of that sacred place. Hmm. That really hardens some people to say, I don't know what kind of God you all are talking about, but I don't want to have anything to do with any kind of God that uses the sacred to condone this. And so I don't want to deal with any of you people that have anything to do with religion because hmm. you guys are causing the wars of the world today. So you meet a real mix, just like you do on any street in America. The American military is no different. Everything from the atheist to the devout Orthodox Jew to the Wiccan to the pagan to everything in between, it's all there. thing about this war I think that our our forefathers and mothers would not recognize is this generation of soldiers will do their own religion and not wait for the chaplain to organize it for them. <laughs> right. So it's not unusual to find Bible studies, Quranic studies, prayer groups, people doing it and not they're not asking for permission, they're exercising their freedom. It's a wonderful thing to see. Hmm. So you'll have a chapel on every one of these Ford operating bases and a chaplain staffing the chapel. You might not have big attendance. But don't let that fool you about the religious fervor on that operating base. Hmm. It just may not be in an organized variety. There's someone named Gordon Cosby. Have you heard of him? He's a Baptist. He was a Baptist minister and a chaplain in World War II, and he founded the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. I just know the name. And I he, don't wanted, know him well. he wanted to found kind of a, a new kind of church because as a chaplain in World War II, he said he experienced that what churches should have been, and he was mostly with Christian American soldiers, I suppose, at that time. Or, um, 
He felt churches should have been places where people were prepared to face death and to face the large transcendent issues of life and death that they were confronted with in battle, and they weren't. What you're describing is, you know, and now there are many more people who we would call unchurched in our culture, but I think it's really interesting that what you're describing also is people taking that spiritual quest into their own hands. You bet. You bet. And that's true of American soldiers. Sure. And so... You know, my first time with the military into the Middle East was in 1996, and I was up on the Iraqi border waiting for Saddam to reinvade Kuwait. And I personally gave out over 150 Qurans, people inquiring, what do Muslims believe? Mm. And, hey, look, and I should say they were English translations of the Quran. But here, you can read this for yourself. I passed out Arabic translations and said, if you really want to get to the essence here, you're going to have to learn Arabic. But that's the American soldier searching Okay, and I've passed out thousands of Bibles and Jewish prayer books, and and that's the role of the chaplain, resource people so that they can inquire. I've been called father. I can't, if I had a dime, every time I'd be able to retire today. You know, (laughs) all the denominations come to your services. Mm -hmm. And um, we set aside a lot of things. And I often think about the picture of the animals on the Serengeti when there's a flood and they're all on the island together, predator and prey. Well, you know, combat does that. Hey, we don't have time to worry about the fine distinctions that divide us. Chaplain Major John Morris. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, the soul of war. Major Morris is now working with National Guardsmen and Reservists returning from Iraq. I asked if he sees anything in the 21st century conflicts in which the U.S. is now involved that intensify what he calls the spiritual disconnect that the experience of war always creates. Well, wow, that's a big question. I'm not, I'm not sure I can tackle all that. I, look at our reaction to Abu Ghraib. No warrior worth their salt had anything but disdain for those soldiers that perpetuated that. It struck us a deep spiritual chord. You say us. You're talking about military. Yes, and I was outside Abu Ghraib when those things, those horrible pictures hit the international media. And I'll tell you, men were moved to revulsion because we're not that kind of people, and that isn't the depths that we sink to. And it isn't where we want to go morally or spiritually. And to think that there were among us people that did that, I think those things cause a numbness of the soul. I think another thing that affects us is many soldiers will patrol and patrol for a year, see their buddies maimed, wounded, and killed, and never see the enemy, and come home with a sense of, I didn't do my job. Because I was, it's the insurgency? It, yes. Because you're not facing you know, soldiers in They're invisible. They blow uniform. a bomb up from you know mm-hmm. half a mile away. You never, mm-hmm. They don't come out to fight you. Right. And the warrior sense of, I'm here to protect. I'm here to defend. And I never got to do my job, but my buddy got wounded and killed. I failed in some way. I'm frustrated. I, the sense of justice. Where is justice? These are real things that we wrestle with. And then to see an enemy that's so wanton in the use of innocent people to perpetuate their gains, it, it's in a category we have a hard time comprehending. So, you know, you've used the word chaos with me several times and anarchy and this fact that, um, that you are up against good and evil, including the good and evil within yourself. I think civilians are in that situation also in a war zone, which touches on the big dynamics of, of religious faith and of, of religious traditions. You knew at 23 or something that you mm-hmm. were called to be a chaplain and, mm-hmm. and to be a military chaplain. And, you know, how do all these things you know and all these things you've experienced in yourself and in others, how do they... Can you talk a little bit about how that changes your understanding of some of the great big tenets of mm-hmm. Christianity? Well, let's talk about love your enemies. That's sorely tested in combat. I think, in a very chilling way, I came to the abyss of hate in Fallujah. The body parts of four Americans charred and hanging off a bridge over the Euphrates brought me to a point where I could truly sense myself going down a vortex of hate. That in this city, people were harbored who were that debased. 
And so at that point, I felt that I was crossing a line to say, yes, these people's time on the planet is over. They need to leave. There's no second chance. There's no other form of justice. They have forfeit all rights to humanness. That was a chilling, chilling moment for me because I knew I was entering a new territory. And once you cross this line, there's no coming back. When do I become like them? I found myself fueled with a sense of hatred that I could easily have said, you know, hey, I'm God's wrath. We are God's wrath. This needs to be taken care of. The only thing that pulled me back from that was the power of the Holy Spirit, all the Christian disciplines and my sense of understanding that, wait a minute, as much as I abhor everything that's done and as much as I believe what was done was evil and that if these people don't come out and surrender, there's only one alternative, that is to go in and kill them or apprehend them. I knew I could not cross that line and say, okay, God's on my side and here we go. No, this is chaos. This is human fallenness to the max. And we're using the most brutal tool of human society, the military, to solve a very, very terrible problem. And this isn't God here. This is fallen human beings. So God help me and have mercy on me. I'm a part of something like this, and I pray that it wouldn't be. But here we are. Save me from becoming a debased, immoral human being and save my soldiers as well. One of the things that I see as a challenge here is how does the community accept its moral obligation to reintegrate veterans and their families? And I'm treading lightly here because I don't want to be perceived as laying guilt on people. But what we learned from the Vietnam conflict is if the community shames and shuns, it has a disastrous public health effect that ends up affecting all of us. But we haven't figured out what our moral role is here. And it's often put back on the military. Hey, you fix these people so they can come home and live peacefully among us and we'll be quiet and they'll be quiet. We can't do that. So we've alluded to this. How, how does the church do it? But how does the greater community do this beyond paying our taxes? I think citizens are wrestling with that and looking for guidance. What do I do? Do I say thank you to a veteran? Yeah, that's a beautiful thing to do. But what else do I do? Well, how do I make space in my workplace when that veteran returns for them to make a successful transition? How do I provide for their family while they're gone and their children and help make space for them to reconnect? How do I help the soldier learn how to reconnect with their child? How do I help the child deal with a soldier who's different than when they left? How do I help that spouse who's trying to hold it all together or that grandparent who's raising that soldier's kids? These are community issues that I find the community saying, we didn't think about this. We want to think about this. We need some guidance. Where do we go to learn how to do this? And I am begging for the community, let's talk quickly because there's no end in sight to veterans returning. And how we help them reconnect sets us up for a successful, healthy future, or for lingering problems and wounds from this war. I'm thinking about how you said to me that the trauma, the spiritual and, and, and mental and physical trauma of war has always been there, but we didn't have a language for it Correct. until these last couple of decades. And what you're also, what you're talking about here is that the entire society needs a language also for being part of of that healing. Sure. And in the past, we've attempted this by doing things like Veterans Day, Memorial Day. Those right. are great rituals that brought this issue to the surface for us to wrestle with once again. Obviously, we need to preserve those. But because we're using Guard and Reservists so much, how do we build into our communities, beyond the parade and the welcome home, a long-term effort to help them come all the way home? This involves social services and educators, doctors, lawyers, law enforcement. Every sector of the society will be touched by us and our families. So this is a long-term effort for people who tend to have a microwave attention span. Okay. And I often say it's 
It's like recovering from Hurricane Katrina. Won't happen in a year. Neither will recovering from war. Mm-hmm. And we have people coming home now every day. Sure, every we do. Day. And we will for years and years to come. This is with us for the rest of our lives and on into our children's lives, this homecoming of veterans. So let's get it right this time. Chaplain Major John Morris. His project with the Minnesota Army National Guard is called Beyond the Yellow Ribbon. Chinese playroom is a bunker filled with sand. He's become a third world man. Smoky Sunday, he's been Continue this conversation at speakingoffaith.org. Contact us with your thoughts. Find further reading and resources on community reintegration of veterans and an audio gallery of images Major Morris brought back from Iraq. Listen on demand for no charge to this and previous programs in our archive section or subscribe to our free weekly podcast. You can also sign up for our email newsletter, which brings my journal and transcripts straight to your inbox. That's speakingoffaith.org. This program was produced by Kate Moose, Mitch Hanley, Colleen Check, and Jody Abramson with editor Ken Hom. Our web producer is Trent Gillis with assistance from Ilona Piotrowska. The executive producer of Speaking of Faith is Bill Buesenberg, and I'm Krista Tippett. Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Opus Dei and The Da Vinci Code, Sunday night, June 4th at 10 Eastern on Hallmark Channel, an in-depth look at the usually secretive organization figuring prominently in the film, June 4th, 10 p.m. Eastern, Hallmark Channel, and by Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, a Fortune 500 financial services organization. Funding is also provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at fordfound.org. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Next week, Deciphering the Da Vinci Code. We'll explore history and ideas that are essential to separate fact from fiction in the novel-turned-movie's tantalizing plot. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media 